Jewish views on online abuse. CEO of Pink News Benjamin Cohen tells us about the torrent of trolling he's recently endured. Gefilterfest, what's in store for this year's annual Jewish food festival? And a Polish synagogue destroyed by the Nazis reopens in a town where no Jews are left to worship. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Jason Rosen. Police have launched an investigation after the founder of Pink News, Benjamin Cohen, received hundreds of anti-Semitic and homophobic messages online. Mr Cohen was targeted after he posted a message about reading a gay inclusive book to his infant nieces. This comes in the week that Jewish leaders have welcomed a code aimed at stemming the massive growth of online anti-Semitism. The new Internet Code of Conduct has been agreed between Brussels and technology giants like Facebook, Twitter and Google. It includes a pledge by agreeing companies to review the majority of abuse reports within 24 hours. A senior EU lawyer has ruled business owners can ban Jewish men from wearing a kippah or Muslim women from wearing headscarves at work if their company has a general policy barring all political and religious symbols. Ulana Kokot, an advocate general at the European Court of Justice, said the hijab should be viewed no differently to a kippah, a Sikh turban or a Christian employee wearing a prominent crucifix. Oral Arabic is set to become mandatory in all Jewish primary schools in Israel. The move by the Ministry of Education has been welcomed by charities such as the Abraham Fund Initiative, who spent the last decade campaigning for the change. Arabic is already Israel's second language, but it's hoped the introduction to classrooms will go some way to improving the communication obstacle amongst Arab and Jewish children. Hebrew teaching in Arab villages is either of poor quality or non-existent. And finally, the former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs has collected a £1.1 million prize. Lord Sachs received the Templeton Prize for bringing spiritual insight to the public conversation. At the ceremony held in central London, he used his acceptance speech to issue a stark warning to the West for outsourcing morality. He also added upon finding out he'd won, he was almost rendered speechless. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sports. Thanks, Jason. One of Jewish football's most successful managerial reigns has come to an end after Rob Rickman and Jonathan Green quit as managers of North London Raiders. The pair led the side to an historic double-double and will be replaced by former Real Sosobad manager Daniel Schaffron. The final game of the Jewish football season takes place on Sunday when Redbridge B take on North London Raiders Masters in the final of the MGBSFL Masters Invitational Cup. Elsewhere, Eli Levy's first match in charge of the Israeli national football team ended in a 3-1 defeat to Serbia. And finally, the Israeli wheelchair tennis team saw their World Team Cup match against Morocco called off after their opponents refused to play them. Coach Nimrod Bichler said, This is a sad day for sports and an even sadder day for Paralympic sports. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Lots of news stories to get through today. Most of them appear to be on the front page because there's so many juicy stories. But let's start off with Tao Landsman, shall we? Yeah, there's not really much to say really about the the front page other than this is the end of a very unfortunate chapter for an innocent man. Tao Landsman faced one charge of child cruelty at LL summer camps in Boreham Wood. He was accused of not passing on important information that was uh, alluding to a criminal uh, accusation. He had his day in court. It took a jury less than an hour to find him completely innocent. He's been exonerated of all charges and he's uh, on the front page this week saying he's hoping to get his life back and he's very relieved after 10 months of uh, a real ordeal and hell that he and his family have gone through. So uh, we wish him good luck in putting his life and his uh, career back together. Indeed we do. Okay, and also on the front page this week, Brexodus, Nicky Morgan and Douglas Carswell to go head-to-head at Jewish News EU debate. Have we got an event to look out for or something? Yeah, another Jewish News forum. We're delighted this time to be working with JTV, the new uh, online Jewish TV station. You got bored of having a podcast already. You've gone to television now. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've moved beyond you, Phil, already. It's just... <laughs> You're, 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 you're in the past. It's fine. Shouldn't I can we take have this it. discussion in private rather than <laughs> on the airwaves? Phil, <laughs> it's bad news, I'm afraid. I can take it. I can take it. It's all good. Anyway, I apologise. I interrupted. Is, is a finger going to come out for, for a Lord Sugar <laughs> moment here? Oh, actually, completely by the by, he was at a Bermitzvah I was at last weekend. Anyway, I thought you'd like to know that. Anyway, I do apologise. JCV in cahoots with your working with. Yeah, so Brexit debate, Brexit vote is now uh, just three weeks away. Really, the only subject on the political horizon for uh, for all political parties, and we're delighted to have been able to bring together Douglas Carswell, of course, uh, campaigning for Brexit, and the Education Secretary Nicky Morgan, who is going to be putting the case to remain in the EU. Um, this is going to be taking place in East London at the studios of JTV on the 14th of June. And we'd be delighted to see all our listeners and readers there. Yeah, we'll be tackling big issues, security, anti-Semitism, policy of the EU towards Israel. Would Britain be better in or out of Europe? And also other key issues like uh, wonky bananas, crooked cucumbers, the end, end to imperial measurements. So there's lots to discuss on a very important and perhaps on a very trivial level. And we've got two real big heavyweights on uh, both sides of the debate to put across, I think, the issues that uh, matter to our readers most. So it's going to be a fascinating debate and we're going to hopefully be able to broadcast the highlights of it on this show. We will indeed. We look forward to that. Okay. also on the front cover this week is Naz Shah. Now, obviously, Naz featured a couple of weeks back. She's the MP who, of course, made comments that perhaps were less than savoury, shall we say, for... Jewish community out there. And as a result of it, she's now turned her life around a bit and, and been speaking in a synagogue, I believe. Yeah, I think that it didn't go well down, down well with the community. It's a slight understatement. Of course, she is the MP who, back in 2014, at the height of the Gaza conflict, endorsed a social media post calling for the transportation of Israelis to America, was subsequently suspended by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, what's been striking about her case is just how remorseful she's shown herself to be. Uh, you know, at every turn, whether it been in the House of Commons, uh, in, a, in an exclusive statement to the Jewish News, to the community directly, and now uh, 
She's really stepped into the lion's den close to her constituency at a synagogue in Leeds at the weekend to answer questions, to again apologise for what she had done and to acknowledge that she was really ignorant about Judaism back then. She's already making moves to try and make amends. She's had meetings with the Jewish Labour movement and with others. Really, and I think possibly the most significant thing she said while in the synagogue was that she wants to be the person to own the narrative and to really take on the fight against anti-Semitism within the Muslim community. You know, If anything good is to come out of this, it's just that. I think she has real potential to be the person to talk to those people that perhaps some of the Jewish community leadership can't get to. I think the other thing that was striking about her case is just how different her approach has been to that of Jackie Walker, a Labour activist that was readmitted to the party following her uh, suspension this week. Uh, And she showed no remorse whatsoever. She's refused to apologise and said, you know, these are difficult issues and that she's got nothing to apologise for. I'm starting to have some grudging respect for for Naz Shah. I mean, obviously my jaw dropped when I saw what she had been Facebooking a couple of years ago and she was rightly suspended. She's really fallen on her sword. She is a prime mover now in the Muslim British community in terms of getting a sense of understanding and sympathy and empathy for the Jewish community and Israel's plight in the Middle East. And as I said, I, I mean, I take my hat off to her. I, I think, you know, the, the, the nightmare that she put the Jewish community through and the anti-Semitism scandal that was provoked as a consequence of what she did, hopefully we might have actually a light at the end of the tunnel here. Indeed. Well, bravo to her, say all of us. And inside the paper, that's unbelievable to think that all of that was all on the front page, but there are some other stories within the paper, one of which we're going to hear a little more about when we speak to the man himself. Journalist Ben Cohen has been in the news this week, hasn't he? And that is because of some further unsavoury comments made online but obviously not by him aimed at him yeah Uh, ben cohen is a very prominent member of the gay community and a very very prominent jewish person a vocal member of the jewish community he put up a uh, gorgeous little picture of him and his uh, niece two nieces or a niece and yeah, a nephew. Yeah, his, his little nieces, yeah. yeah. And he was uh, reading them a, a child's book that was gay inclusive. And not only did he get homophobic incidents uh, and insults uh, in return, he also got a lot of anti-Semitic ones as well. So it was double-barreled bigotry that this man faced. Uh, the police are probing it now. And it's just, as he said, he is just absolutely bemused at the level of, of vitriol and ignorance and stupidity that spouted anonymously on social media. One of the things he points out is that a number of those that are targeting him have also targeted other prominent Jewish figures. Uh, and I don't know who those figures are, but I, I do know, obviously, we've had in the news recently the cases of Luciana Berger, probably the most prominent of those Jewish figures targeted with online abuse. And it, it's yet another example, really, that, that Twitter need to be doing more uh, and acting more quickly to tackle this type of thing. If accounts exist, and some of those apply here. If accounts exist that are doing nothing but targeting people with abuse of various descriptions, then, then surely they have no reason and no, no, no right to have a platform on Twitter. Well, hopefully, with any luck, we've heard just now in the news with Jason, it's also in the paper this week, about the new code of conduct that has been introduced. And with any luck, hopefully we will start to see an improvement as social media sites such as Facebook, such as Twitter, also Google, I believe, for Google Plus as well, have adopted them. And with any luck, we will see an improvement on that front. Now, 
ordinarily it would be at this stage I'd be rounding off and saying that that's all we've got time for for the paper this week. However, social media is to blame for what I'm about to say now, Justin, and you weren't expecting this at all. But I remember seeing something that suggested that it might be around 15 years since your first front page hit the Jewish news. So I thought that we could talk a little bit about that. And you can stare daggers at me because you didn't know I was going to say this. But would you mind telling us exactly sort of what your very first front page was and and maybe you can talk about some of the highlights over the last 15 years it's a bit like this is Shall your I life. leave the room <laughs> <laughs> this is quite a surprise isn't it uh, yeah sorry about my voice going up there yeah. uh, yes uh, that's right uh, wednesday was the uh, exactly 15 years to the day since the publication of my first front page which was tories attack rudy's rant which relates to the uh, now late mp rudy viz the mp for finishing and golders green before mike freer and a spat that he was having with the Tory candidate at the time ahead of the 2001 general election. There have been a few elections, a few political developments uh, since then. And yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey at the Jewish News. We've really seen the paper grow hugely in that time, helped in part by you know, a general move in the media away from paid-for titles towards the free media, which has certainly helped the Jewish News. But I think we've, we've played our own part uh, as a team in, in, you know, offering uh, good exclusives. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so, all right. Very magnanimous, Justin. <laughs> May I just add, because Justin would, would never, ever... Are you in on this? Admit, no, I have no idea. I'm just making this up <laughs> as I go along, but I might as well talk from my heart. Uh, yeah, Justin just came in, and I wasn't the... Was I the business back then? I can't even remember. Maybe I was you doing were, something yeah, else. As a work experience intern. Uh, and now, all these years later, all those issues later, maybe 800 issues of the Jewish news, he is the byline behind the biggest news stories that break to do with the Jewish community in this country, if not worldwide. His name is now synonymous with the biggest Jewish news scoops in the country. So uh, that tells you all you need to know about the man. It certainly does. Well, here's to the next 15 years and Mazel Tov for everyone at the Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. That's all we've got time for. We're not talking about me. (laughs) It's not about you, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we've got time for for this look at the paper for this week. Don't forget, though, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday right across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing, one of the biggest concerns of the 21st century has got to be the unprecedented rise in online bullying. The Jewish community has had more than its fair share of such abuse. Our first guest this week can vouch for the truth in that statement. Journalist Benjamin Cohen and the founder of Pink News received a torrent of online abuse when he posted a message about reading a gay-inclusive book to his infant nieces. I've been speaking to Benjamin to find out more. Can you... Tell us in your words what you've been through this week and, and why you've come into the news. On Sunday, I went to see my sister and see my nieces. And I went to read that, went to give them a book that I'd bought called King and King, which tells a story about how it's actually a really sweet story uh, where there's a, a prince and his parents want him to get married. And he goes through a succession of different princesses that he's introduced to and none of them he likes. And then one princess arrives with her brother, a prince, and he realizes that he's fallen in love, but rather than falling in love with the princess, he's fallen in love with the other prince and they get married and everyone lives happily ever after. So it's rather like any traditional fairy tale, except that clearly there's, there's, there's gay characters in it. And after we read the book, we took a selfie with uh, my sister and my nieces, who were three and one, and posted it onto Twitter just to say I had a lovely time reading this book. 
as it happens, in, initially, I just got very positive of the feedback saying, oh, that's great. What's the name of the book? Gave people like the links to like how to buy it, et cetera. Um, and then it wasn't until the following day, more than 24 hours later, actually, that I started to get sort of anti-Semitic homophobic abuse on Twitter. And that ranged from people calling me a pedophile or a pervert to people suggesting that I should be gassed in a concentration camp, that people made me like meme images taking photographs of me and adding the yellow Jude star, like the Jewish star that uh, Nazis made Jewish people wear in the ghettos. And then other people saying, well, next time it won't be a metaphorical star. You'll actually be wearing one in a concentration camp. And it's so basically just ghastly, ghastly stuff that no one yeah. should ever have to go through and be subjected to. When you read the book to your nieces, I've got to be careful when I ask you this because I don't want to offend you or anyone who's listening. But I suppose it's only fair that I ask this. Do you recognize that there are some people listening who might say that when you read fairy tales, it's supposed to be innocent it's supposed to not have any subliminal messaging such as same-sex partnerships and it should well, be just about the story but, well yeah but then there's if you were to read a conventional fairy tale so for example we also read on the same day sleeping beauty so there's a you know in that instance there's a lady there's a girl who has a curse put on her she falls asleep but she's woken up by a man who she immediately He's a prince who she immediately falls in love with and gets married. What's the subliminal message there? It's actually just a heteronormative message that if you're a woman, you're going to be woken up by a man. If you're woken up from your 16-year slumber, whatever it is, and then suddenly you're going to fall in love and want to marry and have babies of a man. That's there's a, there's a message in that which is which is to try and imply to children that if you're a girl you should fall in love with a guy and if you're a guy you should fall in love with a girl. In this instance, in the book that we read, it was rep- it was reflecting that there are different sorts of relationships in the book. As it happens, the prince's page falls in love with one of the princesses and marries her because he thinks she's pretty, but the prince doesn't. So in that, it's showing actually that different people have different relationships. Now, some people would object, and actually this particular book has been banned from like public libraries in some US states. It's had all sorts of uh, ridiculous things written about it. But actually, in modern Britain, and in fact, in, you know, in, in really any country in 2016, you need to have literature that is reflective of the society that we live in. Now, the reason that we bought the book for my niece is that she has two gay uncles, me and my partner. She also has two gay grandmas because my brother-in-law's mom is gay and she has a partner as well. And so she is seeing my, my well, both of my nieces. One of them is one and doesn't probably understand this, but one of them is you know going to be four later this year. She understands that already that some couples are a man and a woman and other couples are two men or two women. And so she needs to see literature that reflects the reality of the family structure that she knows and interacts with. Because she, And the reason particularly we bought it was she had been asking me and my boyfriend when it is precisely we're going to be getting married so she's aware of the fact that two boys can get married already and not because we've told her anything it's just because 
her one of her other her aunties is getting married so she was asking when when is it that she's going to be the bridesmaid for us the situation that we have is very reflective of lots of other families and so that's why literature like this is important but also in an age where there is still huge amounts of homophobic discrimination and bullying that happens in school why actually all children knowing about this is important because even though you might not have gay people in your family, the likelihood is nowadays, if you're in a school environment, some of your friends might have gay parents or gay uncles and aunts. And you need to understand the different family structures that are the makeup of modern societies. You must really welcome then in that case, the new ruling that has happened this week, a new agreement that has been made, a code of conduct we learned of in the news this week that says that large media sites such as Facebook, Twitter, Google+, all of those big names are going to try and respond to requests of abuse within 24 hours and try and stamp it out as best as possible. I assume you obviously welcome that, but do you really think it's feasible? And well, how I do you foresee? I actually think it's meaningless. It's completely meaningless. So the reason it's meaningless is there are so many people who've posted things about me. There's been probably now about 500 different accounts that have done this. You know, I'm running a media company, Pink News. I don't have time to sit there and individually report each person. So if I were to do that, it would probably take me days to do that, file a report from each one. So, yeah, Twitter can look at the responses, can look at the complaint and might do something and might block these people. But frankly, if you look through the people who've been tweeting me, their accounts solely are posting homophobic and anti-Semitic things. Also, in some instances, they're also saying things against black people and Asian people. But on the whole, they're mainly just anti-Semites. Now, yes, things people like Twitter can review this stuff in 24 hours, but it's frankly not good enough because it sh they shouldn't allow a situation to happen where these sorts of hateful views are allowed to fester in their systems. But, but let me just sorry, let me just ask at this stage, what would you like to see done about this? Sorry, it's only because time is against us. But what would you actually like to see companies such as Twitter or Facebook do about this? In the instances that, I'm, that I've experienced, the language that people are posting about me is pretty predictable. So really what Twitter should be doing is filtering that sort of language. If you're a company like Twitter with the level of technology and the number of developers they have working for them, it is not within the realms of possibility for them to be able to filter out these things. And if, for example, I was to report one of these people's tweets, you would expect them to block the entire account. But what I would also say, though, is this is specific to Twitter. I posted the same photograph, actually, of a slightly more provocative wording on Facebook, and all I had were positive things. I have more people that follow me on Facebook than Twitter. On Twitter, I have like 17,000 people. On Facebook, I have like 60-something thousand people that follow my posts on, on Facebook. Um, the, the reaction on Facebook was positive. And there were one or two nasty comments, but Facebook's own filtering process hides them and notifies me so I can approve them if I think that they're reasonable. Twitter does nothing like that. And that's exactly what it needs to do if it's, all that's, if it's able to maintain a system that does not breed the sort of hate that it does today. Journalist and CEO of Pink News, Benjamin Cohen, speaking to me there about his recent experiences of online abuse. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing religious regalia.
Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Kinga Staronowska about the rebuilding of a Polish synagogue that was destroyed by the Nazis. Now, can you believe it's nearly time for this year's Gefilterfest? It takes place on Sunday the 26th of June at JW3, and entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out what's in store for this year by speaking to organiser Nikki Tiefenbrunn and one of the participants, Emma Spitzer. She started by asking Nikki to tell us exactly what Gefilterfest is. It's a celebration of Jewish food in all its forms, whether you want to study text, you want to learn from a top London chef. It's a celebration of our heritage and our culture. It's a full day event. There are 40 sessions. There is a pop-up marketplace, a children's program. You can come and learn, eat and enjoy the buzz that is Gefilterfest. Excellent. Do you think of Gefilterfest and you immediately think of Gefilter fish, but not necessarily just sort of Hamisher food then? No, not at all. I think we cover the spectrum from Ashkenazi, Sephardi, old style, new style. You can find anything at the festival. This year we have chefs making traditional Hungarian food. We have the award-winning Palomar chefs coming with their very modern take on Jerusalem cuisine. We have someone exploring the Italian cooking of their grandmother and her Jewish roots. So there's a real diversity of the food at the festival. And you want people to, the aim of it, if you like, you said is to celebrate good food, good Jewish food. I think it's about people connecting with their culture in a way that is very accessible. It crosses all boundaries and it's a way to identify with our heritage. And there's something for everybody there. And for me, it's about the community coming together, having an opportunity to come together in a way that is very accessible. And when you say everybody, presumably then the whole family is welcome? Young, old, absolutely. We have a dedicated children's programme. So yes, we welcome and encourage everyone to come. Give us a quick flavour of what is some some of the key highlights of the day. So one of our key speakers this year is the MasterChef winner from Israel. She's an Arab citizen of Israel. She won the MasterChef show there, breaking TV records in the process. Her name is is Nof Atama Ismael. And she, since winning MasterChef, she has used food as a tool to bring diverse communities together. And she has done just amazing work in Israel. We're really excited that she's coming over here. And she's going to be exploring Arabic cuisine, but she does it knowing about kashrut, knowing about what works for an Israeli, diverse Israeli audience. So she's got a very interesting story, very interesting principle about what she believes food can do. Plus, she's an amazing speaker, full of personality. And she's going to be demonstrating as well as talking. Yes, yes. She has got some very interesting recipes to share. So we're very excited that she's coming. Also following on from on an Israeli theme, we have the award-winning chefs from Palomar. So this is a restaurant that won Restaurant of the Year last year in London. But it's the team from the Jerusalem Machana Yehuda group that 
this is their London outpost and their head chef is coming and demonstrating some of their signature dishes and we're very excited that Emma Spitzer who was the finalist in the UK MasterChef last year is going to be working alongside them for that session so double whammy there. Funny you should say that because we have Emma with us. Hello, Emma. Hi there. And you probably know something a little bit about a little bit about MasterChef. I do. I know all about the pressure. Oh, go on. (laughs) Yeah, I think MasterChef is probably one of the most intense cooking, but not just a cooking experience. It's just an all-round pressure test. I've just always said to people, it's as much about holding your nerve, keeping calm, and being focused as it is about your talents as a chef. (laughs) And what have you been working on? Since MasterChef last year, I've been working very hard on a book, which I will be launching next April. So it's a a little while off yet, but it takes time to put it all together. So I've got a brilliant publisher. I'm really excited about that. I've been doing some some teaching, some demonstrations, a little bit of food festivals here and there, private dining, all sorts, really. And what will your book focus on? So my book is combining my Ashkenazi heritage with my husband's North African heritage. So it's Sephardi meets Ashkenazi cuisine. And I've pretty much fused the two. So for example, I've taken a classic stuffed cabbage recipe, but I've put it in a crima sauce. So I've, I've sort of tried to soup up some fairly bland Polish recipes, if you like, with some spices. Excellent. They can be a bit heavy. And, what, and you're bringing all of this to Gefilterfest? Actually, this year, um, last year I was more involved uh, with a demonstration. This year I'm really pleased to be the assistant chef. I'm really, really excited to work with the Palomar. And to, I'll, I'll probably enjoy the festival more this year without the nerves and the pressure. So uh, I'm really excited about it. Will that be Israeli cuisine or will that be your North African Ashkenazi fusion? Uh, I'm not cooking. I'm literally the sous chef this year. So uh, I will assist in doing whatever is required of me. Even washing a few pots. You never know. No, no, like. no. I'll, I'll draw the line. <laughs> draw the line there. We wouldn't make you do that, I promise. <laughs> so what's, what else is new and different this year? We have enhanced our food provision in the marketplace. The marketplace last year was very successful. We took over the whole piazza. We've expanded it this year. So there'll be 25 stalls, all showcasing the best of kosher cuisine, food purveyors, people showcasing restaurants, charities that work in the food industry and for the first time we have meat at JW3 at the festival so you can get your burger fix your shawarma fix there will be a full range of lunch options on the piazza. Meat is new at JW3 it was always very veggie round there how did you manage that? So we have worked with a new kashrut authority and they have been fantastic and we have just found a way to make it work so we will have restaurants in the piazza serving meat you'll be able to bring your food into any part of the downstairs area at JW3 with some provisos which I won't bore you with now and it should really enhance the the food provision at the festival certainly the differences but if anybody's worried about the kashrut it is an orthodox we are kashrut under the safadi bet din and it is all fine we do seem to be obsessed by food, don't we? I mean, Emma, do you find that, that there is so much foodie, foodie talk around, particularly around Jewish cooking and Jewish food? Why is that? 
I just think, I mean, if you look at all the holidays in the Jewish religion, they're all centered around food. I think food is just absolutely core to who we are, to what we represent. They represent our beliefs, where we come from, our hardships, everything. And I do feel that food unites us so much as well. And yet, you know, we all belong to one religion, but, you know, there are so many different types of Jewish cuisine. And I think we don't really own many Jewish dishes. I mean, you know, in research for my book, it's sort of there's there's the hamin or the chulant, you know, the, the challah, but very few recipes are actually claimed as Jewish recipes. We've just interpreted them depending on where we come from, the resources available to us and adopted them for kashrut laws as well. But I think fundamentally being Jewish, you just associate it with being, you know, with food. And, and also, I mean, a lot of people, when I say, oh, I'm Jewish, people talk first off about the food. <laughs> I think that's why we're in our seventh year. We've managed to fill our sessions without repetition. And each year we have people bringing in cuisine from really diverse parts of the world, whether it's Indian or Moroccan, Italian, Lithuanian. We have someone coming from South Africa this year and taking Jewish South African cuisine to the fore. And there's just a different way of exploring Jewish food, whether it's going old school or bringing in a modern twist. Nikki Tiefenbrun and Emma Spitzer talking to Kate Fulton there, giving us a taster, see what I did there, of this year's Gefilte Fest, which takes place on Sunday the 26th of June 2016. For tickets, you can always go to either Gefilte Fest, that's G-E-F-I-L-T-E-F-E-S-T dot org, or you can go to the JW3 website, which is jw3.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, I don't expect that you would have heard of Wolper Synagogue, but it was a little wooden synagogue built in the early part of the 18th century in Poland. So incredible was this building that it was given a listed status, but unfortunately, the Nazis burnt it down. Well, luckily, over 70 years on, it's been lovingly rebuilt, but probably what's even more incredible than that is that there is no Jewish community left to worship where the synagogue stands now. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more about this incredible building. She's been speaking to Kinga Steronivska from the organisation behind the rebuild. She started by asking Kinga to tell us a bit about the history of the old synagogue. The original building came from Volpa, formerly a Polish town but now in Belarus. Volpa synagogue was probably built in the first half of the 18th century. In 1929, was listed as a cultural monument, only to be burned down during the Second World War by Nazis. It is said the original temple was the most beautiful wooden synagogue in the Eastern Europe. And is the new synagogue that you're putting up, or have already put up, in the same style as the one in Volpa? Yes, exactly. It's the same style. It's, it's just identical as Volpa Synagogue. Is it also so made of wood? It's, it's, yes, it's wooden synagogue. It's like 14 meters high. And, you know, all the outside stuff looks 
identically. So it's the same thing, to be honest, the same object where we had in, in, in Volpa. One question which I know everybody is going to ask, why was the synagogue rebuilt yeah. if there is no one there who's going to worship in it? In other words, no Jews live in Bilgorai, I understand. Yes, there are actually no, no Jews left. But there's a couple of reasons why we decided to rebuild the synagogue exactly in Bilgorai. Because a synagogue is a part of wooden complex. We just wanted, you know, to show to the people how this kind of wooden architecture looked like before the war. Bilgorai was just burned down in 90%, nothing left, really. So that was the main reason. And the second reason we was, we just wanted to commemorate the presence of Jewish people in Bilgorai. Just before the war, it was like 65% of Jewish you know, population in Bulgaria, so quite a lot. And that's why we want to you know, devote devote our synagogue to the Jewish who lived in Bulgaria before the war. Who is the person who put the money up to rebuild the synagogue? Actually, we've got a couple of sources of the money. First of all, the person of Mr. Tadeusz Kuzmiński. He's a chairman of our foundation and he put his own money at the beginning. It was like 11 million zlotys. So it's like that's a lot of money. Two uh, million pounds. It's, it's quite a lot of money, anyway, for the beginning. And we also using some European funds to develop, you know, our venture. There are a couple of local companies like wine factories or furniture factories, and they also support us. You know, support our foundation. Have you any plans to rebuild perhaps parts of Bilgorai which have been destroyed by the war or have they already been restored? Yeah, we've got, you know, another plans. We want to rebuild like a little wooden Catholic church, a little wooden Tatar mosque and a wooden <laughs> Orthodox church as well. But the, the synagogue was, was our priority. It's very, very commendable. Who is going to maintain it and manage it once it's built and, and in full use? We don't really know who, who's going to be support us in the future. So uh, at the moment, um, there's a lot of, you know, people that are interested in, in, in helping us, you know, to continue our project. So it, it, it depends really <laughs> on future because if it's not maintained properly, it might fall into disrepair? I don't think so, to be honest. This, um, as I said, there's a lot of people, they, I just, they want to put some, you know, own donation to, to, to keep the project, to, um, to continue with this brilliant idea, I, I think. Kinga Steroniska talking to Diana Toman there about the restoration of the Volpa Synagogue. For more information or to see photos, why not go to the website bilgorai21.pl. Bilgorai is spelt B-I-L-G-O-R-A-J-21.pl. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. The subject for this edition is based on a story we heard a little earlier on In the News with Jason. A senior EU lawyer has ruled that business owners can ban Jewish men from wearing a kippah or Muslim women from wearing headscarves at work if their company has a general policy barring all political and religious symbols. So we thought we'd discuss religious regalia. The question is, should people be allowed to wear whatever they want in the name of religion, or should it only be at a certain time or place? Let's start with you, Tony. Would you object to someone telling you that you couldn't wear a kippah at work? Yes, I would. I think I think you should be able to wear whatever you want. I have a, a slight issue with this, and, and, and I do remember the article, because they're talking about a headscarf, I think, originally. This is where it came in which I don't have an issue with. I would have an issue with someone in a full-face veil because you couldn't see who you're talking to. But other than that, didn't this have a case with someone wearing a cross? Yes, there was, exactly. Some time a, ago, British Airways yes, or something. A, a British Airways staff member was wearing a, yeah. a, a cross and she had to take it off or lose her job. Yes. And I, well, I don't see why people shouldn't wear religious regalia if that's what you believe in, and you should be able to wear it. don't have an issue with that. How do you feel, Jeremy? I concur with Tony, actually. This country has got a, a, a long history of religious and political freedom and tolerance. And I think, be, I think we would rue the day if we allowed any sort of law, whether it's from Brussels or Westminster, to be imposed on companies saying you have the right to stop people from doing what they want to express themselves. I think it would be a, a retrograde step for our society. There are exceptions, and of course in the case of um, some Muslim women who want to wear a face veil mm-hmm. uh, in court... So for security and, and for legal reasons, they, 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 I think they shouldn't be worn there. But elsewhere, I think it'll be resisted. I think, I think, I think, be the, resisted. I think the, the, this particular story came because a, a Muslim girl on a reception desk wanted to wear her headscarf. Mm. And if you're on a reception desk, you wouldn't want someone in a full veil anyway, would you? Because no, you can't no, see the no, face no, at all. Yeah. But it's nonsense that someone working in, in an office could, could, should not wear a... Uh, a scarf mm. over their head. It's, it's absolutely absurd. No, they should be able to. We've mentioned Muslims and Jews. What about Sikhs? Their headgear. I no, believe actually that's, now, now they're that's, exempt, aren't they, from this? Well, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, the ruling does cover that. Well. Cover, yeah, yeah okay. I think what I find quite confusing, I think, at the moment, is that we don't have any hard and fast rule. Not, not even rule, just, just mm. general feeling about we're a pluralistic society. We crave so we say, multiculturalism, diversity, especially in England and especially in London. But at the same time, we expect people to assimilate. Now, there's a real difficult level to find of how much assimilation compared to how much diversity and how much multiculturalism. Are we stopping people expressing their multiculturalism by wanting them to to not wear the headscarves, but at the same time, you know, it, it is a real difficult dichotomy uh, here. I would say there is a difference between assimilation and integration, but I wouldn't want the French model where these things, where you have a completely secular society. And I, I don't think it's worked in France actually. No, I think I think it's divided 
the ethnic minorities. Did you notice that you said you come back from France? Did you notice? I didn't really notice. There were there were many Muslim women on in one or two in Nice I saw, and also in other French provincial towns, and they were quite distinctive. They were in their headscarves as they do over here. No oh, but why why should a Jewish man be allowed to wear his kippah to work? Why? Why, why should he? Why shouldn't he? No. Why should he be allowed? Because that's he wants his head covered. That's it. And they, they should, he shouldn't. But if be he banned. wants his head covered, why can't someone else go to work without their trousers on? No, that's totally different. That's, that's not really just. That, uh, if, I, if I get to the point, though, the point is, you then went on to say, but I wouldn't want the head, the full veil. No, because well, you can't see the there. face. That's the only reason. So, are we talking? physical appearance here or are we talking religious beliefs because if that's the, if, if you think a Jewish man should be allowed to wear a kippah because that's his religious belief that's his tradition that's his culture that's who he is then why shouldn't a Muslim woman wear the, wear full, the full hijab if that is her culture and that is her religious beliefs how can we differentiate no. between it's one not- person being more religious, uh, less religious. Uh, 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 the full face veil is nothing to do with religion, apparently. It's just to do with the local culture. It's just covering their hair yeah. in the same way covering the Jewish woman wears, wears uh, Well, well that's your opinion, but that's not her religious belief. It's because this, this country in particular is turning into a totally non-religious country. A short while ago, uh, there was an article in the Times, I think, which said that the Christian churches are losing their congregations by thousands. And mm. the fact that a, an air hostess in working for British Airways was not allowed to wear a cross round her, her neck is absolutely ridiculous. It's not just men wearing kippot and Muslim women wearing a scarf. It's also Christian women wearing a cross round her. Or, or a Jew wearing a mug and dolly. Yes, like exactly. that. But, but I think Tony's got, the, got a point here, Adam. You know, I mean, from from terms of, of security and general pragmatism, somebody wearing a full <laughs> a full uh, veil. But it's, that's it, only... it, I, th- I think that's, you know, I mean, other than that, I can't think of any others where, where other religions, well, there... society. I mean, there may be, I don't know. But I, I mean, it's just impractical to have that necessarily in, in, certain, only, in, only in, in court, in court, and other sort of client-facing situations. And supposedly, I, 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 I think yeah. there's another reason. I guess to think was, don't it, wear it is if you're travelling on an airline from one country to another. That's also a good. Yeah. If, you, if you're working in an office where you're not customer facing, I guess uh, there's no problem yeah, with I that. I wouldn't have a problem with that either, no. actually. No, it's only customer facing. Oh, yeah. We're talking about, so what about if, a, if a Hare Krishna had to shave his head and wore his hair had in, different, in a way that we wouldn't be used to and wears a tunic? No, that's fine. Okay that's fine. Yeah, well. that's fine. But I don't why? have an issue with it. Well, why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't it be, yeah. Why shouldn't the hijab be? You see, I, I, let's, go, let's take the conversation with we're, we're not worried about the hijab. It's only if you're customer facing. Because you've got your face covered and you can't have a conversation. So are you then with, you can't saying see someone's that, expression are you then saying covered. that if somebody wears a hijab, you're not allowed to face customers? That's discrimination. It's if you sort, want to a, wear a hijab, you have to sit out the back of the, then, the then company you, then you, then in the back office. No, then, then, you are, then you do discriminate. Yeah. You have to discriminate. You have to discriminate, yes, I agree. It's like you can't be... Well, no, for years and years, you couldn't be a police officer in the Met Police if you weren't five foot eight and a half. Is that, so if you were five foot six, is that discrimination? But we do have laws against discrimination. Yeah, yes, I know, but OK, but OK, fine. But it's like, you know, how far do you take it? If I'm a night on, on the radio coming here before, if you're a 97 year old, 92 year old driver and got a driving license and you're fit and you're healthy and your eyesight's fine, why should you have your license taken away from you? Which is something else I think you could bring in. I mean, it's also it's discrimination. That's, that's practical I mean, how, reasons. Yeah, but so, well, so is a hijab. So is a hijab. So is a hijab. It's practical because so you can't see the face. How about a Rastafarian with dreadlocks down well, his yeah, back? I know, but you can see his face. 
You can see his face. It's only, the, it's only hiding the face when you're having a conversation. If I have a conversation with you, I can see your face and I can see your facial expressions and we can get on. Yeah. If you can't see someone's facial expressions when they're having a conversation, you, you can't see where the conversation's going. It's almost uh, one-sided. And, 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 across the Arab, and across the Arab world, where women are allowed to work, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they don't wear a full veil. I'm sure they don't. I'd imagine they do in many areas. I'm though, sure, though. but not necessarily in commerce. I, th I think we're probably not geared up for that. I mean, us in the studio here, we're not geared up for it because we don't really know. Is it something so, that we're just not very comfortable with? We don't understand I'm not it, no, 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 I'm not uncomfortable with it. I just think it's that facial expression when you're having a conversation. I've repeated myself several times now, but that's all it is. It's a bit like when you're going through passport control and they've got to see the face because... They, they wouldn't need to know who's coming through. I think that's the most important thing that you've, you've said. That's security, but it, that's generally... absolute security. Yeah, but yes. generally... And they well, do go in a separate room. I wouldn't say it was absolute security, that. but like, I think... I it could, is security. It's security, security issue. Well, it's security, and, and yeah. uh, security is quite different from somebody just carrying an ordinary life and yes. wearing particularly religious yes. things. Strangely enough, you mentioned if, if they were in an office environment and, and not customer-facing, would you be uncomfortable with it? And I guess if I was working in that office and I had to deal with a woman wearing the full-face mask and having a conversation, I think maybe I would be uncomfortable with it. I would like to see her face well, and having a conversation. You would adapt. But it wouldn't, you would adapt. It, it wouldn't make it a lot of difference to the no. business. No. Exactly. It would be nice, as I can see your faces here. But, yeah. I mean, apart from that, the other things are, are it, it's absolutely ridiculous to the fact that you can't wear a cross round your, round yes. your throat or you, you can't wear a kippah. I mean, or walk around wearing, with a big beard if you're Hasidic. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I exactly. think you should. I think you should be something else. I mean, I mean yeah. they, they've been banned in countries before now, haven't they? Mm. I think Argentina banned them when they were when they were, when they, really? they were when they were a dictatorship. Yes, I'm fairly certain. Why would anybody for power? Uh, strangely enough, this this thing with the religious dress hasn't really worked in France. I, I was in Paris last year, and and you go to areas and and. Jewish people are there with their kippot on and their tzitzit hanging out and in their religious garb and you see Muslims walking. I didn't see anybody in full hijab, I must say. I thought but they that, were in scarves. That has and, been stopped in France. I don't think... But the, they were there. They the were, kippah they were, hasn't been stopped, no, has it? No, it hasn't. No. And, and the people in Muslim dress haven't. Yeah. So but they wanted to, but it, it clearly doesn't work. It doesn't in, matter. You can't, you can't in the general society. Impose. I think that there's nothing wrong with people following their religion, whatever they do. They should be allowed to. That's yes. absolute freedom. That's absolute liberty. Yeah. It's absurd to put bans on things. To no, do otherwise we're becoming a police state, aren't we, and, and telling people what to do. Yes. But, but you still think we should ban a hijab in, in no. customer-facing? I'm not saying... I, I, don't, I don't say we should... I'm not saying we should ban it. I just think, as a, as a customer coming in somewhere... Look, if I go to if I go to a Muslim restaurant and, and the woman's wearing hijab, fine. But if you're dealing with a bank, let's say it's a bank and, and it's your bank, and you want to talk to the manager, and the manager comes out with the hijab, you don't know what they're telling you. You've only got the voice to go by. I would, and some and okay, we're on radio, so you've only got the voice to go by here. But you, sometimes you do need that facial expression. Hmm. Uh, yeah, okay. It would be quite interesting when artificial intelligence comes in and replaces <laughs> most of these, those sorts of jobs anyway, but that's another a discussion for another day, I would imagine. <laughs> when, so, it, when it replaces the radio announcement. No, no, no. I, I personally, if I'm going to do business with an organisation, if I'm going to deposit all, all my savings and money with a bank, I have already felt comfortable enough to trust that organisation to deal with them. If their manager walks out and is wearing a full facial hijab, I don't have a problem with that. I've got absolutely no concerns. If they 
the organisation that I've trusted with my money trusts this person, don't care who they are, don't care what religion they are, this person, whatever they wear, if the bank trusts them well enough to manage even, that even bank, though, even, it doesn't matter to even me. Even though you can't see a facial expression. Why should that matter? Actually Why do I want to see my bank manager's facial well, expression? Because when he looks having... at my account, that's when I don't want to see it. Because, well, that's why you should <laughs> <In> actual <laughs> fact, actual fact, there would be no Muslim woman wearing a, a veil around her face in a bank because she wouldn't be allowed to do that. If she wears that on her face, obviously she's deeply religious from her from her religion, and Muslim women are not supposed to do that. Just like Jewish women, deeply religious Jewish women, are supposed to stay in the kitchen and do the cooking and actually the they, house. Pro they probably wouldn't deal with a man anyway. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. It's, 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 it's exactly it's, the yeah. same thing. I mean, the next thing, I mean, really, I think people wearing tattoos is a bigger problem, but you know, it's potentially a bigger problem than than a hijab. Much bigger problem. I have heard that employers do. Someone will walk into a job interview, and if they've got tattoos here and here and wherever, less discrimination, but more so. I think the employer looks at them and think, "Okay, you're not somebody who necessarily looks long term and mm. perhaps makes Maybe. decisions." But, but then yeah. they don't know the person. Jump should they not find out about the person before well, they make decision? Everybody has discrimination. They, they, may, they may tell you it's not a non for non-discriminatory reasons why you didn't get the job, but everybody has biases. I mean, everybody might have prejudices and, and mm. dislike things, mm -hmm. but it's still a free country. And unless yeah. you do something which is criminal, why not be allowed to do whatever you, you want to do from a, a religious oh, point of view? Yeah, well, then you'd have chaos, wouldn't you? If you didn't, how, how far do you, do you extend it? There have, you need to have order guidelines, in, guidelines mm. and order in society. Well, there we are. Um, whether that will ever happen, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, thank you all very much. Our time is thank up. You. My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, just ahead of our rabbinic thought for the week, Shavuot is nearly upon us. So who better than to tell us how to make a lovely cheesecake for the occasion than Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And this time she's going to tell us how to make a savoury salmon cheesecake. This year, Shavuos is Motzei Shabbos, so I have made something which is perfect for Yontuf lunch the next day. And this is a salmon cheesecake. Jews love salmon, Jews like cheese, so why not combine the two together? It is really delicious and it serves 10 to 12 people, so do invite your guests for lunch because there'll be plenty for everybody. It only takes about 15 minutes to make and 50 minutes to cook. So what you have is a base and that is with 100 grams of grated cheddar cheese, 250 grams of breadcrumbs, which are lightly toasted, and then 120 grams of unsorted butter. So with this base, I want you to put all those ingredients in the food processor and then transfer it to a cake tin, which is 22 centimetres in size with a loose base one. And then you're going to bake this for 10 to 12 minutes at 200 degrees centigrade or gas mark six. So you've got a nice crispy base. Now we're going to talk about the filling. And the filling 
is made with five spring onions and some garlic and a little bit of oil. And what you're going to do is slightly fry the onions and the garlic so they're soft. So now you've got this onion mixture and to this onion mixture you are going to add 750 grams of cream cheese, so it's quite a lot, and five eggs, 350 grams of smoked salmon, three tablespoons of fresh dill, and then 450 grams of fresh salmon, which is cooked and flaked, zest of a lemon and juice of half a lemon, a pinch of cayenne, and maybe a little bit of salt and pepper. So all those ingredients, so I'll just recap, the spring onions and garlic, the cream cheese, the eggs, the smoked salmon, the fresh salmon, the dill and lemon juice, and a little bit of seasoning. Combine that all together and carefully spread this mixture into your cooked base and then bake it for about an hour. And it comes out beautiful. Test it with a skewer to set it cooked in the middle and then finish it, like all my recipes, the stylish way with fresh dill. Thank you to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there for that delicious sounding salmon cheesecake recipe. For that and indeed other recipes by Denise, you can always go to jewishcookery.com. Time now for our rabbinic thoughts for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. This Shabbat's Torah reading, Bechukotai, is not easy. It contains the blessings which are beautiful of peace and security in our land, but also the curses if we do not keep our covenant with God. This pattern probably follows ancient treaties between peoples and their kings, but now it's between us and God and can feel threatening. One of those curses stands out to me. If we do not follow God's laws or look after our land, God will make us exiles. And then, says the Torah, then the land will keep its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while we are in the land of our enemies. This made me think about the relationship between us and land and our increasing alienation from the land as we become more urban, particularly as Jews, where more and more city rather than country dwellers because we seek out our communities. But relationship with land is important, its rhythms, its beauty, nurturing it, looking after it as God instructed us when Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden to care for it and to work it. And if we do become alienated from the land and we don't care about it and we poison it or simply exploit it, use it mercilessly without letting it have its rhythms and its seasons, then our fate, not just as Jews but as humanity, will be to become exiled from the land. I've been reading Svetlana Alexeyevich's Chernobyl Prayer, where she listens to the testimony of people who refused to be exiled after the nuclear disaster. And afterwards, their attitude to animal life and trees and plants changed. They felt a deep companionship of all life. If we feel that companionship with God's life, with all life, we won't mistreat our land, and then we'll be at home on it, wherever on earth we should choose to dwell. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Benjamin Cohen, Nikki Tiefenbrunn, Emma Spitzer, Kinga Staranevska, Tony Honigberg and Jeremy Jacobs, who are on the schmooze, Denise Phillips, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. 
You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>